0: This month at Lean Out, I've been speaking with journalists that I admire and having conversations about the state of the mainstream media and the rise of the independent press. My guest today runs an independent outlet in Ottawa, and she joins me to talk through some of the year's biggest stories. Holly Doan is an award winning journalist. And the publisher and owner of Blacklock's Reporter. Holly Doan is my guest today on Lean Out. Holly, welcome to Lean Out. It's lovely to be here, Tara. Thank you for inviting me. So nice to have you on. I've been wanting to speak with you for a while, so it's great to get the opportunity. I want to start today with the story of Tom Blacklock, former president of the Ottawa Press Gallery, for whom your site is named. Tell us about him and the journalistic ethos that he embodied.
1: Well, Tom Blacklock is a real guy. He was born in um, Halton County in Ontario in the 1870s. He went west to make his fortune. He was the first mayor of Weyburn, Saskatchewan. He worked for a number of newspapers and then returned to Ottawa as a war correspondent for the Montreal Gazette. And we first saw his unsmiling, high collared picture on the wall of the Parliamentary Press Gallery Hot Room, where he was president in 1922. And after doing, we did political history documentaries for a while. And so we saw Thomas Blacklock's correspondence in the archives with his friend, Prime Minister Arthur Meehan. They had a a warm and frank conversation about things like conscription. And one of Tom Blacklock's uh, famous lines was, well, that ain't the way I heard it. So to us in that uh, irreverence or suggestion of knowledge that you possess that others don't. We thought that this is the guy, the brand that we want for our product when we launched in 2012. Mm. Now, Black Locks
0: is a reporter-owned and reporter-operated newsroom in Ottawa, and you specialize in the kind of time-intensive reporting that a lot of places don't do anymore, filing freedom of information requests, looking at in-depth at bills and regulations, reporting on committees and federal court records. This work takes both resources and deep journalistic experience. How have you made this business model work in the current climate?
1: Well, I would say you nailed it when you say experience. Together, the editor and co-founder and I each have been in this business over 40 years and have been to Ottawa once before and then left and then came back. And also over the, the 10 years that we've been doing this work have taught ourselves how to document searches. We have taught ourselves where to find documents that are mandated that they must be posted online by authorities, but they don't make them easy to find. It's like a systemic check. If you were, um, uh, you know, a cub reporter in a local newsroom, what's the first thing you did every morning? You checked with the cops, you checked the competition. So we have a, a series of checks where documents are deposited that we have taught ourselves, and it's been a goldmine. And in doing this kind of work, and particularly you mentioned the committee coverage, what we have learned in the process is that the public, particularly with committees, have responded to those, and we found out that Canadians were surprised that there seemed to be these congressional-like continuous hearings happening in Ottawa. Well, this is just the process of how bills become a law. But then we asked ourselves... If Canadians don't know how their parliamentary democracy works, because reporters no longer cover those things, how is our democracy damaged? And we understood that by noodling down even tighter on the fine details of how we are governed, that we would have a business model. And Eureka! Blacklocks was born.
0: Mm. And now you have been in the news this past week. Your co-founder, reporter Tom Korski, was escorted out of the parliamentary press gallery. As far as I can tell, the allegations amount to him being impolite. Walk me through your account of what happened here.
1: Well, this matter, Tara, is going to litigation. So there's uh, I'm going to be limited in what I'm going to say at this point. But we have reported it, and the press gallery has also put out their side in a press release. There's a few inaccuracies and parsing of words. Um, Mr. Korski was not escorted out. That's not what we said. We said that the gallery president and was accompanied by an armed cop. Mm. Well, the eviction notice, if you thought know that was read, he was there. Tom saw him, gun on hip. So that's not in question. Uh, The escorted out was something that kind of got away on everybody on on Twitter's interpretation, which you know how that can happen. But I don't know, Tara, if you've ever been a member of a volunteer board, either uh, at your condo association or something. There are frequently axe grinders, people who want to use the authority to uh, seek reprisal for some reason or other. Some of that has happened here. We don't think, Black Fox covers the Public Labor Relations and Employee Board. This is a quasi-judicial body that arbitrates disputes between the federal employer and its employees. So we've learned a lot about process. And some of the things we've learned, we saw happening in this case. So it is not reasonable to think that a, any complaint, whatever it is, about another member would be uh, withheld. The complaint was withheld from Blacklocks, uh, that meetings would be held in secret, that Blacklocks would ask three times to speak to the board virtually or in person to try to work this out, to make recommendations. We were refused. They wanted only something in writing that the threatened to terminate our membership entirely, quote, terminate, said the letter, happened before any of this process took place. There was a mediator, which we cooperated fully with. We were denied a right to see the mediator's report until we wrote about it. So this, whether this is merely shenanigans, political shenanigans by a volunteer board, or whether there is something darker at play, we believe sincerely that when these matters go to a proper third party, that it no longer is evaluated in the realm of feelings that we will deal with facts. And that's a really good thing for both sides when we deal in facts and examine what the documents say. So we're committed to that process and we are happy to live with it no matter the outcome.
0: Mm. Now, you had previously reported on access to information requests, 35 unnamed publishers meeting with the Canada Revenue Agency, discussing distribution of 593 million in subsidies. Do you contend that the eviction and the issue with Tom Korski is related to your reporting on press subsidies in this country?
1: We believe that some of our reporting underpins the distaste that some have towards black locks. There has been various skirmishes over the years that were settled in one way or the other. We don't understand why it's come to this now. Why in a a 35-foot room with 90% empty desks that there would not be some resolution of this matter, either reconfiguration of this newsroom to separate people or say installations of TVs on on individual desks. I mean, if the parliamentary press gallery contends that its bylaws have, there's a noise bylaw or there's a swearing bylaw, then we will evaluate that. We do, we believe and You don't have to accept my side of it at all. I mean, this will be presented that our reporting underpins this, but let's find out. Let's go to cross-examination and discovery and subpoena of documents and let's find out.
0: Now the Canadian media has been criticized recently for accepting government subsidies, uh, most recently by British journalist Douglas Murray during the prestigious monk debate about whether the public can trust the mainstream media. BlackLocks reporter does not accept government subsidies. Walk me through your thinking on that.
1: In 2018, when the the government first proposed that it to subsidize I should, let me back up a year. In 2017, the former Heritage Minister, Melanie Jolie, famously said to a group of journalists, quote, it will not be our policy to support failed business models, unquote. Uh, The Department of Heritage itself, policy analysts had written about the losses in the media jobs in the media industry and about the likelihood that the wolf is at the door for several organizations, I don't know. Were those the failed ones that Madame Julie was talking about? A year later, after a significant lobby campaign that involved the president of News Media Canada, uh, ex-president Bob Cox and liberal lobbyist Isabel Metcalf, voila, their position was reversed. And the new heritage minister, Pablo Rodriguez, was talking about subsidizing media as a method to save democracy, save journalism and save democracy. At that moment, uh, my editor and i looked at each other and said no we we can't we can't take money we, can't, we that that's going to destroy our business that is going to destroy trust in what we're trying to do as a small media organization struggling to realize uh, a profit in our our business model to convince canadians in this time of uber skepticism and fake news that we weren't some sort of bad online actor, that we were 40-year career journalists, to take the federal money would be to destroy our own business model. Because we believe then, uh, as now, that that newsrooms cannot accept government handouts and be free of government influence or interference at the same time. We believed it then, and we believe it even more more firmly now.
0: Mm. I want to spend a moment on one of the big stories this year, the trucker convoy crisis and the Public Order Emergency Commission, which has just wrapped up. You have a story out this morning about how the RCMP privately mocked uh, Mark Carney's claims in the Global Mail that the convoy was, quote, sedition. I'm curious for someone who's watched this quite closely, what do you see as one development to come out of POEC that really surprised you?
1: I don't know if it surprised us, but there there was very little evidence that the government met the test to uh invoke the emergencies act. We really thought that cabinet was going to come up with some fireworks they they didn't there was we didn't really learn anything new about the legitimate reasons for declaring the act that we didn't know beforehand. We had reaffirmed by police and others that. For instance, there were no guns, there was no arson fire attached to the convoy, that there the police did not indeed tell the Minister of Safety that they needed the Emergencies Act. We saw miscommunication, we saw spin. I guess the interesting part about the Public Order Emergency Commission that we are confounded by is that the real evidence of whether or not there were grounds to invoke came not so much in the testimony that reporters seem to be focused on as they were tweeting from the commission room, but in the documents that were filed. And by the way, they still continue to have to file documents and to have meetings with interest groups. It's not really quite over on the Friday that the public order emergency commission wrapped up, they deposited 5,000 documents and we've been feeding off them ever since, still reporting as to, to what happened. We would be very surprised if this, if Justice Rouleau can find that the government made the test.
0: Mm. And when you look at the mainstream media coverage of the convoy crisis, what do you think the legacy press got the most wrong on that story from a factual perspective?
1: I think there was a general hysteria. I think that it could not have been pleasant for reporters to be on the ground in February at minus 30 fighting with truckers. Blacklocks, by the way, never interviewed a trucker, never went out into the convoy other than to walk home at night. Our focus is 100% 24 7 on government accountability. We are not the trucker accountability website. We are the government accountability website. I think that it has been suggested to me, and I'm still wondering if this is the case, that some of the media distortions in covering the convoy encouraged the government, that disorder and sedition were rampant and that they had grounds for the Emergencies Act. I think the media played an enormous role, but we also think that the convoy ex-Cesis Director Ward Alcock said this: that the implications, maybe like the War Measures Act. The implications of invoking, invoking the Emergencies Act will be with us for years, for years to come, no matter what Justice Rouleau says, whether he sanctions it or whether he, or whether he criticizes the government for using it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, such a serious, serious point in our history here.
1: It's the story of the year, Tara. There's no question. If we had a Time Magazine Canada story of the year, it's the convoy.
0: hmm. Yes. And you, you have been a journalist for decades. I'm curious about your perspective about journalism right now and where you think we are at as a profession and what has changed during the time that you've been practicing this profession.
1: I've been asked to give a number of talks on this subject to different groups, some private think tanks recently, and everyone has the same question. What the hell's wrong with media? Tell us, Holly, what's wrong with media? You know, are they, are they lazy? Are they stupid? Are they woke? Is it all narratives? Is it activist journalism? What happened? And I actually have a a perspective that's a little bit different in that I think that it has to do with the skill set. So when I was a young journalist, I started at a very small television station. And part of my job was to twice a week get into the company Pinto and bump across uh, snowy roads to cover town council. In places you've never heard of, like Boisevane and Verdon. And from there, you might cover the. This was in the city of small city of Brandon, Manitoba, and you covered uh, the school board and you covered the university board of governors meetings. And then you move to Saskatoon and you cover city city council and then you move to Alberta and you cover the legislature and maybe some courts. And through that decades long process of learning a craft, you start to understand how government works, how different levels of government relate. Journalism is not taught in universities. I mean, it's something you can't learn in universities. It's an apprentice. It's an apprenticeship. Mm. And you have to apprentice to make your mistakes and learn. So that by the time you arrive in Ottawa, so 11 years after all of that, I arrived in Ottawa, still feeling quite incompetent and not even ready for what is arguably the biggest story now in the country. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. Now you have journalists who go to journalism school where they're not taught anything about covering courts or local council, because it's apprenticeship system, remember, and they go straight to their first jobs on Parliament Hill. Well, how can you know anything about how to cover a farm subsidy program? You might not even know a farmer. How do you cover a business loan program? You might not even know a small business owner. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one thing. That's the reporter's. Then there has been a problem with the editing process. It, with the loss of so many outlets, the editing process has been consolidated. So you will have a reporter, say, in Edmonton, who once upon a time, let's say he was the, he or she was the court reporter. Well, they might have a, a little cubby office at the courthouse. They, they're there every day. They get to know the Crown prosecutors, the defense attorneys, the registrars, the cops. You know them all. You might have lunch with them in the cafeteria. Right. Well, those jobs are gone. And so the editing process, that is the assignment, will come from the consolidated desk, we call it, in most often Toronto.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, how can a editor in Toronto know what the story is at the Edmonton Courthouse or, let's say, at the Commons Public Accounts Committee? They can't. But they see the same news releases that you see, that I see, that all of us see, dispatched by the government. And so they can tell you that the the prime minister is is taking his son to a Tim Hortons today. They can see that. They can see, oh, it's the Indo-Pacific announcement coming up on Sunday. We got to have that. They... The reporters are no longer telling the desk what the story is because the reporters aren't on the ground. And the ones who are on the ground, the few of them that are left graduated Carlton three years ago. That's so it's a little bit like the analogy I like to use is, you know, when, when Mao took over after the revolution in China in 1949, the first thing he did was kill all the tailors because they were a bad class background. And after 25 years, If you looked at images of China on TV, you could tell that no one knew how to make a suit anymore. The tailors were gone. That's a little bit like what's happened to journalism. The skills are gone. Journalism isn't dying. On the the ground level, it's dead. Next, you're going to ask me, how do we get it back? I'm not really sure, Tara. I'm not really sure. All I know is that we just do our little bit to try to focus on Thomas Blacklock's old timey journalism, where we just look at the documents and cover committees and hope that that resonates enough that Canadians will demand that kind of work. And they are.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, what you s- just said, it makes the hair on my arms stand up. Oh, wow. I, th- <laughs> I just think it's so important that we have kind of detailed holding of all levels of government to account and that we have an informed citizenry.
1: Well, we think, we think that accountable, well, if you want to sum Black Locks up in 25 words or less, accountability and transparency. And we believe that by reporting not only the fine details of committee work and how we're governed, but reporting audits, uh, waste, incompetent, even sometimes corruption, we do not believe that those things undermine public institutions. We genuinely believe that that makes our public institutions stronger because by exposing missteps, mistakes, then those will be corrected. And we've seen a little bit of that in our own work after we reported a story about Something. For instance, let's take our story that was picked up by the New York Post that the public health agency during pandemic had a contract to monitor Canadian cell phones because they wanted to assess compliance with the lockdowns. Well, that story then was picked up by opposition, and this is their job now, New Democrats and Conservatives, and and there were committee hearings on it where they asked the head of the public health committee to come in. This is what accountability looks like. Do we, is anybody think that the public health agency will ever do that again? No, they won't. And that's the point of accountability journalism. And if we get a bunch of subscribers from that or no subscribers from that, we're still satisfied that something like that can really can still happen. Mm.
0: And before we close, Holly, I mean, you recently pointed out on Twitter uh, that we have seen several public panels on the state of journalism, including the Monk debate I referenced, but also a TVO event, and an event hosted by Carleton Journalism that featured Catherine Tate, head of the CBC, my former employer, Marco Mendocino, public safety minister, and several journalists who say they've experienced online hate. Um, when you think about those three panels together, do you think that we are having a moment in this country of self-reflection in journalism? Is is that happening on any sort of concrete level?
1: I said to someone just yesterday, I'm almost tired of all these stories about media and these panels now. It's almost getting boring even to me. Um, but I think that those three panels on the heels of each other were very instructional and all three very different, as you know. I think that the third one, the one at Carlton, indicated a complete unawareness by journalists of how they are seen and what's happening. That panel was embarrassing. It was embarrassing for us as journalists who are not interested in talking about our own experiences, but just, just trying to get the story out of committee today, right? It's embarrassing for us. I thought also it was embarrassing for the Minister of Public Safety, a cabinet minister who was invited Two hours of his time, that's a big deal, to sit there and be lectured by people who have been in journalism for about eight minutes, as those ones I was describing earlier. Uh, I think, and these also are the, these are the consultants, if you will, that the government is depending on to uh, support their online harms bill. I think the media has not done itself any favors by so much navel gazing and so much self-absorption. Wake up, pay attention to your readers. I think that journalists have forgotten who their readers are. They don't even know who they're writing for anymore. I'm not gonna say, are they writing for the government? Are they writing for each other? I don't know. But uh, as someone else said recently that it's uncomfortable to watch this suicide because it is is industry self-immolation. And I think that is media waking up? I don't know. I guess you'll see if there is a difference in the content. That's how you will judge if media is waking up.
0: Mm. And Holly, just to close, we have seen in uh, recent years a real surge of interest in the independent press from the public. (laughs) Do you feel optimistic about that?
1: You know, uh I do, actually. I mean, it's been a rough 10 years for Black We are small. We were unfunded. No angel benefactors or charitable. We have run the thing out of the trunk of our car for 10 years and bought date expired meat. (laughs) So, but everything changed during pandemic. Why did it change? Because Canadians are realizing that information that media provides matters, that it matters to your life, to your family, to your business. And they are looking around and they can't see that information in mainstream press. You know, one, permit one small anecdote. In 2014, Blacklocks, Locks, uh, this was during the Harper era, Blacklocks was covering two pieces of legislation that were nicknamed the big union bosses bills. And they were, I can still remember them, C-277 and C-325. And they were aimed at exposing union executive uh, remuneration and benefits, et cetera. And we co- followed them all the way through the committee. All the way through the committee process, the, the constitutional experts who testified they were uh, not constitutional, and no other media covered it. And at that time, all the unions subscribed to us, all the big ones. Why, I said to the then librarian at Unifor, we're not a Labour publication. And she said, because we can't get this in the Ottawa Citizen. We have to know what's happening. And as the Senate was preparing to pass those bills. A reporter said finally reporters showed up, said, why are these important anyway, these bills? That's too late. That's too late to tell Canadians about uh, legislation that affects their lives. And I think that people who, starting with interest groups, but then expanding to individuals, have started to understand that mainstream media can't or won't, I don't know, uh, provide all the details, and that There are, there is a place for small niche independent media. We have to get off the idea that small niche independent media has to go big, that we have to be mass, mass audience, that we, that that you're not legitimate until you have the mass audience that the Globe and Mail or the CBC does. And it's questionable whether the Globe has that mass audience anymore. What is going to happen is that media is going to get smaller. That is, the big guys are going to get smaller and some of the independents are going to get bigger. And then there's going to be this broader spectrum of of niche publications, each doing their own thing. Some of them will die. Some of them you won't like. They'll be too partisan or sketchy. Uh, But what I would always say to people is that this disruption has been extraordinarily painful. Be patient try some of the sub stackers, try just one year, scrape up the money for another publication to something else. Be patient with the bigger operations. Maybe they will find their way because this is an era of terrible disruption and Canadians are experiencing it too. And we're sorry for that. But I believe that, that a better product and journalism will come out of this at the end. Don't ask me when that day is.
0: Well, Holly, I really appreciate your work, and I appreciate so much this conversation today.
1: Oh, thanks for inviting me. It's, it's good to talk about, even though uh, maybe some of our readers or listeners are exhausted about hearing about our troubles. <laughs>
0: <laughs> good to have you on. You too. Lean Out requested comment from the Parliamentary Press Gallery regarding the eviction of Tom Korski. It sent a statement which reads, in part, The Press Gallery Executive Committee received a complaint from several members of serious misconduct regarding a gallery member, Tom Korski. The subcategory of serious misconduct at issue in the complaint may be described as pertaining to harassing or otherwise inappropriate conduct by a member. The complaint did not pertain to any issue of journalistic practices or principles. The executive considered the complaint in accordance with the Constitution and the procedures set out in the gallery's complaint procedures. This statement goes on to note The executive, after careful scrutiny of the facts alleged by the complainants, has determined the complaint was well founded and that the conduct complained of constituted serious misconduct. The statement also notes contrary to certain accounts of these events circulating on social media, Mr Korsky was not escorted by a police officer off the gallery premises he was advised of the decision of the executive and given to the end of the day to comply with the decision by leaving the premises the statement also notes the media outlet with which mr korsky is associated blacklock's reporter retains two members in the press gallery including mr korsky the decision in question pertains only to the access of mr korsky himself to gallery facilities shared by other members. You can read the Press Gallery's entire statement at tarahenley.substack.com. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.